Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, good morning. Thank you for coming to CAS Business School. I'm Julia from Editorial Intelligence. Some of you regularly come to our events. Some of you have come uh, by specific invitation to this event, which is being recorded for video and audio, and it's a bit late to go for the door if you are averse to that, uh, but you may do so now if you are. Um, we're putting on this particular event in association with Read in Partnership and The Mind Gym, two of whom uh, are speakers on the panel. The reason why we're holding it at the CAS Business School is because CAS are one of our key partners in events like this which are designed to stimulate thinking and possibly even stimulate action. And the whole point about this event is we hope it will form a springboard for some very active discussions CAS and Editorial Intelligence are beginning to have with partners about what the delivery agenda actually might look like in a new era. Um, before I hand over to Martin Bright, I'd like to particularly thank Nick Jarman for coming down from Doncaster this morning. So I'm going to hand over to Martin, who is a very unusual journalist, in that he's a journalist who has probably the widest portfolio of many. He is the political editor of the Jewish Chronicle and the blogger for spectator.co.uk. But as interestingly, he has done something which delivers and does, which is he set up something called New Deal of the Mind, which is an extraordinary coalition of uh, enterprises designed to stimulate employment in the creative sector, and therefore he's the perfect chair. It just remains for me to say um, it is all on the record, and please turn off your mobile phones. And Martin. Thank you very much, Julia. Um, yes, I mean, thanks for letting me chair this, because it's a fascinating subject, how you deliver as a journalist, uh, over the years, I spent a long time uh, telling politicians how they should deliver. It's very easy when you're a journalist to do that. You just, uh, it's very easy just to knock and to criticise, uh, and it's very important that journalists do it. And uh, I loved doing it for many, many years. It was great fun. Um, but uh, around this time last year, uh, I was given a challenge by uh, James Pennell, the then uh, Work and Pension Secretary, and Andy Burnham, the then culture secretary to actually do something. Uh, I've written an article for the New Statesman called We Need a New Deal of the Mind, suggesting that in order to create work during uh, the 21st century, we needed to turn to the thriving creative industries rather than our conventional industries. Uh, and the first two calls I got after writing the article were from those two cabinet ministers saying, well, go on then. Uh, so I sort of have tried to. Uh, over the past year, uh, I have entered this strange world of delivery, uh, and um, it is really, really hard. Um, much, much harder than I thought it would be. Um, uh, and uh, I wanted to say just a couple of words about that before I introduced our, our panellists. Um, I've worked with some great people within the creative institutions. In fact, I would say that if you want something done in this country, you should turn to the people who run our big creative institutions because they have to deliver 
They have to get shows out night after night after night. They have to make people uh, turn up to those shows. And if they don't, they fail in a very obvious and very embarrassing way. I was surprised at how good they were at their jobs because I had written plenty of stories about loveys and uh, <laughs> assumed that they would be kind of rubbish, uh, and they aren't. Um, what's been um, more shocking, I think, is, is within the public sector itself, um, there are some fantastic people. I have worked with some fantastic people, but um, there is a strange culture of non-delivery. Um, and... <laughs> I, I hear a kind of ruffle of uh, agreement through the audience. But um, it strikes me that in the junior ranks of people working for our uh, government and for our government agencies, um, people are given three powers. They're given the power to say no, uh, they're given the power to delay, and they're given the power to screw up. And people are only human so it's no surprise, really, if they do all three of those things. Um, and I think it's probably wrong for us to judge them too harshly for doing so. So one of the questions I wanted to ask today, and wanted to, uh, perhaps our panellists to address, is how do we empower people in junior positions within our public institutions to actually do things, rather than simply use these very negative powers that they have? So that's my little pitch, that's my little um, uh, moan, and uh, I was hoping that some people who know more about these things than me would perhaps provide some of the answers today. So let's move on to our experts on the, on the panel today. Um, on my uh, right is Chris Melvin, who is the Chief Executive of Reading Partnership, uh, one of the largest welfare-to-work providers in the UK, uh, and... Uh, it, says here that Reed has helped over 80,000 people into employment, which is about, uh, uh, I suppose, 75,590 more people than New Deal of the Mind has yet helped into, uh, into employment. So Chris really knows what he's talking about uh, on delivery. Uh, to my far left is uh, Nick Jarman, the Interim Director of Children's and Young People's Services at Doncaster Council. Uh, and uh, he has perhaps mo the most thankless task in Britain today. He has been sent in uh, uh, as part of the Secretary of State's intervention in Doncaster Children's Services. Uh, and Nick has already said to me that if we want a lesson in how not to run public services, then Doncaster provides the perfect example. Um, he's happy to talk about that, he says, and uh, is happy, happy to answer some very difficult questions about how... Uh, places like Doncaster have failed uh, the public. To my immediate left is Mary Riddell, assistant editor at the Daily Telegraph uh, and a former colleague of mine at The Observer, one of the best journalists in the country. Uh, she's also chair of the Children's Rights Alliance for England um, and has a particular interest in, in youth, ju youth justice, I know, um, uh, and is, I'd say, one of the bravest journalists today, not least uh, for her uh, ability to sit through uh, telegraph uh, editorial conferences as their only left winger. Um, <laughs> uh, two away from me on my right, sorry I'm doing this in the, in the running order so it's slightly complicated here, is Professor David Sims, the Associate Dean and Head of, Faculty, uh, of, manage, uh, head of the Faculty of Management here at the Cass Business School. Um, now what I love about um, uh, David's uh, little biography that he's given me here is that um, 
uh, he says that um, he became fascinated by the way in which political factors dominated technical, technical factors within the projects that, uh, that, he was, uh, that he was dealing with within the business world. Um, and I think that hits at the kind of core of what we're talking about today. How do political factors kind of impinge? And what is it about the political culture that we live in that means that people within our public institutions are not prepared to take risks? Uh, and to my far right is uh, Octavius Black, the managing director of the Mind Gym. And um, the, the Mind Gym was founded uh, 10 years ago in order to transform performance by changing the way people think, which I think is probably the scariest biography that I've, uh, I've read <laughs> on one of these panels, actually. Um, so hopefully uh, by the end of this we will find out what that means, and in fact maybe he will have changed the way you all think as well. So could you uh, welcome our panel, please? <clears throat> now how this is going to work is that each of our panellists is going to speak for, I hope, about five minutes uh, introducing this subject, and then as quickly as possible I'll open it out to the audience and uh, get some questions and I may even ask some questions myself. So Chris. Thank you very much Martin. Um, when Julia first mentioned this event to me uh, I was really very excited and interested in it in that I think um, delivery is really going to be a key word for uh, the next government whichever uh, colour that may take and I'd like to just take this opportunity to talk um, briefly about what I feel my experience of value and delivery has been uh, in working with uh, government departments over the last 10 years. Now there's little doubt that over the next few years there's going to be a significant squeeze on our public services and uh, our public services will face some significant challenges going into uh, a period of time where uh, expenditure is cut as opposed to uh, expenditure increasing, which is what they've seen uh, over the last uh, five years or so. And I think really the heart of this will, I hope, come a debate about what is value in public services. And I think over um, the last decade, we have become obsessed by outputs uh, as opposed to value. And a, and a great example of this would be uh, you know, the target-driven approach to healthcare, where we see uh, a requirement to reduce waiting times, irrespective of whether it's detrimental to patients' health in the medium term. Uh, and I hope we will uh, see a much greater uh, focus on the value given through public service, rather than simply trying to break it down into individual outputs. In my own business, uh, at one level, you can see the output uh, very clearly. It's about getting someone a job, re-engaging them with the labour market. But the value of that, I would argue, is much greater if we can keep them in that job and if we can, over time, uh, begin to move them up the earnings ladder, the careers ladder. Because that job... Uh, Will, do, will add a number of uh, added values to that individual. For example, a person who is in work is likely to be healthier than someone who is out of work. Uh, if you look at the family unit, uh, a person or a, a child growing up 
in a family with someone who's working is likely to do better at school than a child from a workless family. A child from a family with someone working is less likely to be unemployed when they're an adult and is likely to earn more in their career than a child from a workless family. So the value of that service goes, in my mind, far beyond uh, simply the output of uh, a job. I suppose I'd also like, in terms of delivery, to take this opportunity to um, challenge in a collaborative way uh, some of our public services. We have, as we all know, uh, just come out of uh, the deepest recession uh, since the Second World War. And I have been uh, quite amazed, actually, at how UK PLC has uh, dealt with that. At Reed, uh, we did some research uh, called Meeting the People Challenge, which you can get from our, our website. And it asked um, a group of companies what uh, strategies they were putting in place uh, last year to cope with the recession. And the questions were pretty much the same as the Reed Group had asked uh, a similar number of companies in 1992 at the height of the last recession. And a very positive picture came from that uh, in the sense that it uncovered a much greater degree of collaboration between employer and employee and a determination to save people's jobs through some quite difficult decisions, whether it might be pay uh, freezes, wage cuts, reduced working, part-time working, you know, not easy things at all, but nevertheless positive in the sense that it meant employer and employee were engaged for the betterment of both parts of that employment pact. And I very much think that um, when we saw the unemployment figures yesterday, and we actually saw a drop in, in unemployment, the fact that we're not uh, today sitting with three million, three million people out of work is, is because of that collaboration which was significantly different from what happened in the early 90s when companies um, you know, quite brutally just stripped out layers of people from uh, their, their organisations. So that's a very positive thing. What on earth has that got to do with the public sector, you might ask? Well, the public sector is about to face the same crunch that the private sector went into two years ago. There will be less, less cash in the public sector, in our public services. So I would appeal to them to do two things, really. The first is around flexibility. As UK PLC has, seen, has shown over the last two years, it doesn't have to be about sacking people. It doesn't have to be about losing jobs. But it requires a collaboration between employee and employer. And I am worried that that desire to collaborate has not shown itself in the public sector yet. And the second is around innovation, because we will see uh, over the next decade a much greater expectation from consumers of public service to access them in a very different way. We've already seen um, things like social media change the way private sector organisations recruit. You know, if you open The Guardian uh, today, the jobs page will be full of public sector adverts, not because um, there's only public sector jobs available, but because the private sector has recognised that it's cheaper and more effective to use new media. 
And the public sector needs to move itself to a space where it begins to embrace uh, new technology and use that technology to deliver the services that we as taxpayers require at a much cheaper price. Thank you very much, Chris. So, uh, recipe for the destruction of the newspaper industry there, Chris. That's very... Uh, <laughs> which moves us swiftly on to, and very neatly on to, uh, to Mary Riddell. I think the newspaper industry is, uh, Martin, doing quite a good job of destroying itself <laughs> half the time, but nice to have a bit of extra help. Um, as, um, uh, I'm a journalist. As, as Martin said earlier, um, I, as he used to, have the luxury of not having to deliver anything much apart from words. So I hope you'll forgive me if I speak a bit more generally about, um, uh, about the subject. I think the presumption at the moment is that value and delivery won't have to alter very much because nothing else is going to alter very much. Um, half the public, 52%, uh, expect more of the state than they do of God and they are in for a very big disappointment. Um, we're living, and leaving austerity aside for a moment, we're living in an age of delusion in which none of the political parties dare spell out exactly what cuts to the public services will mean. And the public, um, which isn't being told very much, has its head in the sand. According to this week's Audit Commission report, um, only a quarter of people think cuts will be needed to reduce the national debt. 50% don't think cuts um, uh, are needed at all. 48% want to spend more. And 75% think that efficiencies will do it. Clearly, we are in cloud cuckoo land. Um, no one's got a prescription for relatively painless public spending cuts. But everybody can see an easy way to go, which is to hack away at the more simple bits. Um, what Ken Clark called low-hanging fruit in a radio uh, interview this week is, I imagine, uh, a sort of shorthand for, um, uh, for, for efficiency savings, mostly unspecified, and um, hacking away at universal benefits, such as child tax credits and the Child Trust Fund. Um, I would like to put in a word for universalism. I think the temptation is going to be uh, to dilute that. It would be obviously uh, uh, an attractive and cost-effective thing to do, but we would invariably end up with poor services for poor people, which would entrench poverty uh, rather than reduce it. And it would also, I think, do away with the great binding agent of our society, the notion that all are equal citizens. Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that the rich shouldn't sometimes get less and pay more in taxes. But I think targeting benefits on the poorest would be doubly dangerous at a time when citizens' unity is going to matter very much. Um, the title of this event, with its focus on, on value and delivery, is inevitably consumerist in tone, but I think we're going to have to move to a more civic model in which citizens get more directly involved in at least some services, I think both main parties have shown a big interest in this. The Conservatives have some very interesting ideas and um, uh, Labour's mutualism or um, its John Lewis model, as it calls it, is, I think, going to feature quite prominently in their manifesto. Uh, the difficulty, I think, is that at the grassroots, people may be far less keen on volunteering and contributing than politicians suppose. Uh, the same audit commission report I mentioned earlier 
found out that 82% of people advocated citizen partnership, but only 2% of those were prepared to turn up even at an initial meeting to hear more and discuss it further. Um, Nonetheless, with that caveat, there is, I think, a wealth of third sector expertise and provision that could be harnessed more effectively in social care, in rehabilitation and so on, and it's going to have to be. Um, As far as delivery is concerned, what I want to focus on very briefly uh, are the potential benefits of recession and of cutbacks. Um, Here are just a couple of examples. Um, We spend billions on imprisoning people, usually many times over because 70% of them re-offend fairly soon after they're let out of prison. Um, This week, a group called the St. Giles' Trust produced the first proper economic evaluation into a scheme to rehabilitate prisoners by meeting them at the gates, helping them find homes and jobs and so on. Uh, I went with Alan Duncan. I'm not often seen out and about with uh, Alan Duncan, but the two of us went to see this scheme last week, just before the report came out, and I was very impressed with, uh, uh, with what they were doing and, indeed, with some of uh, Mr Duncan's ideas, if you know, he gets the chance to, um, to implement them. Um, but anyway, the St. Giles showed a, a 40% drop in reoffending. That's much better than best practice anywhere else in Europe, on a sample of 1,500 people. Every 10% fall in uh, reoffending, I think, saves the taxpayer $1 billion. So if that sort of project were brought up to scale, the exchequer would be better off, crime would drop, and the streets would be much safer. There are questions about delivery. I would question whether a rather piecemeal collection of services can be uh, brought up to scale in the way that Alan Duncan envisages, but I I think the principle underpinning that is very sound. Um, We're going to have to realise, as I don't think either party does actually at the moment, that we can't afford the luxury of jailing more people than anywhere else in Europe. Equally, we're not going to be be able to run a defence budget tailored to the demands of a 20th century world power. Uh, Gordon Brown told me in an interview two weeks ago that Trident is definitely going ahead, but why? um, If we could ever justify a cost of between 20 and 60 billion pounds, we certainly can't now to scale back our nuclear ambitions at a time when the world focus is on non-proliferation would be an example, I think, of how the politics of virtue can be dictated by economic necessity. Um, I am a believer in the state, uh, the big state. I think far from draining power from the individual, it gives power back to the powerful and the powerless alike. But if we're going to protect health, education, other frontline services... Uh, we can no longer squander money, obviously, in the way we have. There's a 17 billion hole at the, sli- at the very slightest in uh, the, the, the Chancellor's um, projections. That vacuum means worse transport, dwindling healthcare over time, and a rigour that people don't yet care even to imagine. Um, I think with that spectre on the horizon, it's rather ironic that the undesirable, the inefficient, the anachronistic appear still to be the only items that are sacrosanct. Uh, We're going to have to make sacrifices. Uh, My um, case would be that the first items to go should be uh, the harmful and the pointless. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mary.
Okay, I've already bust the running order, I'm afraid, uh, in order to make my joke about the newspaper industry. Um, so sorry about that, Nick, um, uh, but you do get your turn now. Thank you well, very much, Nick Jarman. Thanks, Martin. Um, what I'd like to say over the next uh, four or five minutes um, is largely informed from a perspective of running children and young people's services, but I have to say um, the points I want to make are, by and large, of general application to public services uh, across the piece. The point where I think we need to start is this. I think we need to have a proper, full, intelligent debate about what is and isn't the function of the state. Uh, I think that's where we've got to start. Over the last decade, we've seen a massive accretion in public expenditure, uh, and I've seen it directly myself. Uh, and much of that has been around what you would largely call, uh, for want of a better generic expression, to promote social inclusion. Frankly, if you were a young couple with a large mortgage worrying about whether your job was going to be there next week living in Chatham or Chelmsford, you would be jumping up and down with fury if you saw how some of that money had been spent. Uh, you really would, let me believe, let me tell you. The other thing is that there's been a much greater, I think, intrusion by the state into areas where I think it is a matter for legitimate political debate about whether it's the uh, concern of the state and indeed whether the state actually adds value by pr providing services in those areas. Let me give you three simple examples. The model that came in in 2003 for running children's services led to the um, amalgamation of education and children's social care. And it was based upon, I think, the mistaken thesis that, that massive service integration was the magic answer. Uh, you may remember it came about initially in response to the Laming Inquiry after the very tragic death of Victoria Climbier. But as we've seen subsequently, we've seen the massive agglomeration of bureaucracies in the form of, of children's trusts, as they're called now, but we've seen in many cases, and, I'm, and I've had to sort one out, that it's incapable of achieving its most basic aim, which is to keep vulnerable children safe. It hasn't done that, whereas there's been massive expenditure, I wouldn't call it investment, on the more sexy things around social inclusion and engagement. And so the second, uh, two other examples I'd like to give you of where we ought to be asking these questions, and I might add actually this probably also um, applies to public sector broadcasting, but we won't go there this morning. Um, if you look at the, the current obsession there is about obesity, particularly childhood obesity, is it really the function of the state to interfere in that? And surely, and if it is the function of the state, why are we spending so much money on things like healthy schools advisors, right? If these things are so harmful, why don't we take the simple expedient of, of, of say, taxing things like oven chips, pizzas and kebabs at the same rate as alcohol and, 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 and cigarettes? That would surely be a more sensible thing to do. Similarly, the other obsession is about teenage pregnancy. Research consistently demonstrates that teenage pregnancy, by and large, is a lifestyle choice. Uh, families are actually complicit in, 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 in accepting that as a lifestyle choice. The thing we have to stop is to shut off any welfare-related incentives, perverse incentives, that make it attractive. I could go on giving you a critique, but I'd like more to concentrate on what I think we have to do. I think we're all agreed that we're, we're facing a, a, an era of um, uh, forthcoming uh, austerity in public services, and, and quite apart from the need to work out what is or, and isn't the function of the state, there are some practical steps that we need to take. The first of them, I think, is, is, is around uh, looking at what are high-value-added services, things that really make a difference uh, and give a high return. There are inevitably some things that, that, that local authorities and the state will have to do, protecting vulnerable children being foremost amongst those. 
One of the things that I've done uh, in Doncaster and elsewhere where I've worked is, is, and I know this is very 80s, in fact I've used the Boston Matrix, believe it or not, is looking at <laughs> very, a little bit day mode now that shows my age. But the point is, it's about showing public sector organisations where, when cash is short, you're going to get the highest return if you put your money in. Right? And there is just no concept in the public sector at the moment of doing that. Now, in an age of authority, I think it stands to reason that this is the kind of thing that you have to do. It's about looking at high return. The second thing, and, and, and I think this applies to Mary's point about the number of young people and people generally that we jail, but it goes across the piece. It's about the concept of what I call BRSI, Building Resilience and Supporting Independence. It has to be explicit in the design of all services that we provide to individuals that their aim must be to prevent people, individuals, becoming a lifetime cost to public expenditure and in many cases a lifetime cost in terms of nuisance that they cause to society. And any given local authority will have a hardcore of about 700 problem families, right? It's about targeting services on those. It's about genuine early intervention building resistance and making the message explicit that welfare dependency is not a lifestyle option. And at the moment, we're too PC to say that. It has to be an explicit message and it has to be intrinsic in the design of our services, building resilience, supporting independence. The third area is around personalisation. Um, I do believe that people are consumers of services. I think that wherever possible, the consumer should be put in charge. People are perfectly articulate about where they choose to do their shopping on a Saturday or where they take their holidays. They're perfectly articulate and capable of making choose good choices about public services. Why, for example, if you're uh, in a family where you've got a dis disabled child and you need um, help putting your child to bed, you have to put them to bed at 6 o'clock because that's when the help comes round. Why not give them the budget and say, right, okay, well, they might choose to spend it on a bed that moves up and down. I've actually seen these kind of things. And taking Martin's point, sometimes public services, it, it, it distresses me, place obstacles in the way in, uh, of some of our most vulnerable families. Put the consumer in charge. That, that has to be the thing. The corollary of that is that one of the reasons why, uh, to paraphrase what Martin said at the beginning, public services are still often chaotic. They're not generally, but often they are chaotic is because they are still too dominated by producer interest, and in particular by the trade unions, and it's reminiscent of, of what one saw in the 1970s. By personalising services, not only are they cheaper, but also they're more responsive, but also we've got to look at changing the attitude. It's not about the way we do things, it's about the attitude in the public service, services. We've been through business process re-engineering and it has some validity. It's about changing the attitudes and about having a more liberal, in the best sense of the word, approach to how we provide public services. And I think that in that context, most public authorities, whether they like it or not, are going to have to market test probably up to 50% of their cost base over the next four to five years, because that will be inescapable given the tightness of, of, of funding. Because the current arrangements uh, across the piece stifle innovation. And the stifling of innovation is not just about saving money, it actually is about producing better services, particularly for vulnerable young people. So there's a paradox there that the resistance to innovation actually disadvantages some of the most um, vulnerable people uh, in our society. And lastly, I, I think that we, we, you know, as we have this debate, you know, we've, we've got to look, at, we've got to accept the reality that, that there will be uh, less money for public services. Probably there should be less money for public services than there has been hitherto, because frankly, 
much of the fruits of the most recent boom that's gone on, and indeed all of our gold reserves, have been squandered on these kind of things. They have to some extent. It's not all been bad news, but there's been a lot of that has, has gone on. We, we've got to accept also that we need a vi vibrant private sector, uh, a vibrant private sector, and we need to be able to transfer much of the capacity currently that is engaged by the state into the private sector, whether it's you know, in, in, in the service of the public or, 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 or whatever. So I think it's very important. And my last plea would be that in the short term, as councils go through this, as they will have to, there will be massive, massive pressure on delivery of frontline services as government grants come to an end, as they will, like the national strategies come to an end next April, there will be massive costs of severance for local authorities. Meeting those severance costs will be at the expense. So I think the government, of whichever colour, uh, in however it is, six or seven weeks after the election, ought to set up something akin to an innovation fund to help people make that transition. And I, I think uh, certainly some of the things that Melvin said earlier on probably uh, are along those lines. So that's my submission to you on, on, on these matters. Okay, David, the overview, please. <laughs> there is a sense in which every time we talk about this topic, my heart sinks. Because it, it seems to me that we've had lots and lots of conversations around it, and the net result of those conversations has been to make things worse and worse. And that we've actually been marching in the wrong direction for quite a long time, and we reinforce that as we discuss it. Uh, so let's hope that's not what we're doing. Um, Specifically, around about 1979, we went into a big project nationally, which was, let's take our least successful sector. What would that be? That would be manufacturing. And let's try and remodel all our successful sectors, like public services, like education, like health, etc., etc. Let's try and remodel them to be more like our least successful sector. Wouldn't that be clever? Um, and and that, that's been our project over the last 30 years. Um, including introducing managerial systems which are based on a caricature of the managerial systems in the private sector. So what happens is there's a phrase which gets used about some way of managing in the private sector. Uh, some Secretary of State hears about it over a dinner party when they're desperate for a new policy. And the following day, they go in and try to get their civil servants to implement it, basically on a keyword search of what might this mean if we started trying to do such and such. And so you get a lousy version of it, uh, introduced. It seems that if something doesn't work in the private sector, then the solution is to try it out in the public sector. And if you can't make it work anywhere, then put it into the health service. <laughs> so I, I think we've been uh, importing rubbish into our public sector activity for quite a long time now. And just as a little example of that, we've, uh, the, a lot of the stuff was about introducing competition, for example, into the public service without any understanding of what competition meant, with a whole lot of people who, I think, never spent any time going and looking at an Eastern market where competition is highly collaborative. And, 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 and any decent competition has a collaborative base. That just wasn't understood in a lot of the reforms which were done, which is why they were so damaging. Coupled with that... We've got a situation where uh, people are in charge of these situations. They have authority without responsibility because they are, if you like, the managers. So the, uh, you, you have a Secretary of State who is responsible for showing they're doing something for their money. That is basically their responsibility. They have to be, appear to be earning their corn. Uh, so what they do is they then pass orders down to people who have to show they're delivering. These people have... Uh, the, the, the Secretary of State has the authority without the responsibility that the people trying to run public services 
tend to have uh, uh, responsibility without authority uh, and also without trust. An example with this would be asking public services continually to show efficiency gains, and this has been, um, several of my colleagues have, have mentioned this. This is a concept which uh, sounds great, and that's so long as you don't ask what it actually means, uh, when the kinds of measures we've got are so, so poor, uh, we, it just gets trotted out. Efficiency gains, who could argue against it? Stretch targets, that awful 90s pub, uh, private sector phrase, uh, which never had any very clear meaning, apart from the fact that people are suffering a bit, so all must be well, mustn't it? And that all, again, has, has been imported wholesale. So, suppose that we've got here, I, I have a row of, of uh, people who are all chief executives of uh, uh, PCTs. Um, and I, I give them their targets, uh, and none of them are going to say, I'm sorry, it's impossible to deliver that on the amount of money you're giving me, because the first person who says that is a wimp, <laughs> right? And, and we all throw sand in their face and bully them in the playground, because you can't say that. You've got to pretend you can do it. Certainly, if you want your career to go on and you want a bigger and better job in the future, you better pretend to be able to do this. So we've set up a system where there's a collusion of people trying to deliver services to pretend they can do things which are actually impossible. And with luck, someone else will fall over first and all the attention will go on to them. While that's happening, another horror story appears. Another child dies from neglect and the Daily Mail's on the doorstep trying to whip up public horror about it. And, of course, these are horrific cases. Um, and as uh, we, we know from other sectors, hard cases make bad law. But those cases then produce a whole lot of action, which has got nothing much to do with actually solving the problem, but it's to do with compliance. And compliance is the biggest sink of time and energy of all these things. It, is, it, it, it simply doesn't work as a concept because it's always an exercise in getting yet more people sitting outside the stable door waiting for the horse to bolt. Um, and it, it, I'm told it can take up to 80% of time in quite a lot of public service departments, and it's all based on lack of trust. The public sector has multiple audiences for everything it does in a way in which the private sector simply doesn't have. In the private sector, you've got your boss, you've got your peers, you've got the people working for you, and uh, one or two others. The public sector's got all that, plus uh, the local MP, the local MEP, the local councillor, the local paper, the person whose garden joins onto yours at the bottom, the guy in the pub, etc., etc. All those audiences for every one of your actions, uh, checking it over and trying to make it feel bad. Now, one of the features of organizations which have people in them is that people make mistakes. Uh, all people make mistakes. Most people want to do a good job, I suggest. In fact, almost everybody wants to do a good, good job, but they make mistakes. Um, this is not a public sector feature. I sacked my bank last year because it was operationally incompetent. Uh, I've just moved my investments from one platform to another because they were operationally incompetent. They couldn't run it. But no child died, and there's absolutely no interest in David Sims' bank account, apart from some interest by Mrs. Sims, but otherwise, nobody cares. So it's not a news story. So what? I think there are, there are, there are about four or five things I think we should be thinking about in trying to do something about this. Um, one is we need to stop pretending that we're making pins, that the strategies which might be effective for making pins do not work for something as complex or as interesting or as important as public sector activity. Uh, secondly, we need to design organizations that actually work for people as we know them, for human beings, uh, not for 
that dreadful thing called human resources, which is nothing much to do with a human being. Thirdly, uh, we need to build trust. And um, Nick was talking about putting the consumer in charge, but also permitting the worker to make use of their expertise, which is something in many cases they're not currently allowed to do. Fourthly, we need to stop wasting money on compliance systems and on the management consultants who are making fat livings out of how to get a yet tighter compliance system, how to screw the lid down even more so that nobody can do anything. Uh, and fifthly, I think we need to stop denigrating, routinely denigrating our best sector, because that's what we've been doing publicly for a long time now. And that doesn't help the people who are actually trying to do something. Thanks. very much, which brings us to Octavius. Thanks very much indeed. Um, I come from a firm of... Anyone ever heard of the Mind Gym before? Probably of all the... Well, you have. I know we had dinner the other night. But, uh, <laughs> if you hadn't, I'd be very disappointed in my uh, professorial memory. Um, we're basically a firm of business psychologists, and so I come from this from a psychological perspective. We've heard lots of things about the public sector uh, from esteemed colleagues here about processes, technology, and all sorts of other aspects of how they're run and policy. I come to it from the basis of people that ultimately any organisation, the public sector very much so, is all about people. And in particular, I want to talk about the people who work in the public sector uh, and about what I think will make, um, is at least critical to the answer, certainly not the whole answer, but critical to the, to the answer. And that is about differentiating based on performance. As simple as that. What happens when we don't differentiate based on performance is we create what psychologists call social loafing. Social loafing occurs when you look around and you see someone getting away with doing less work than you. And you think, well, that's quite a good deal. And then you're working really hard, but you're not really appreciative of that. Someone's getting away with it, and then you lower the work you're doing. And the other person sees, hang on a moment, they've they lowered their standard. Maybe I can lower mine a bit further as well. And the whole thing carries on down. And you have what's called you have the free, free uh, riders and the suckers. The free riders are the ones who work a bit less. Um, at the lower level, and the suckers are the ones who feel they've been taken for a ride. There's a very simple experiment they did with a tug-of-war. If you have two people pulling on a rope in a tug-of-war, you'll see a certain amount of pressure. As more people come on, the first people pull less hard. So there's a very common factor when we have groups of people, is that we have social loafing. And overall, as more people get involved, and people in technology products have seen this, the overall standard of performance and contributions tends to descend. So the only way that psychologists have found of dealing with this is about differentiating based on performance and about having the kind of robust performance conversations that have consequences about them. Now, again, our experience in the public sector suggests that there aren't always an awful lot of consequences around performance. If the principles are that great performance is recognized and rewarded, good performance is coached to make it great, and adequate or poor performance isn't allowed to last all that long, then that doesn't seem to be what happens. I'll give you a, a few examples. In, in the world of education, which is, um, we have, uh, the, uh, if you take 14-year-old boys, white 14-year-old boys who have free school meals, the, the more than 50% have an average reading age of a 7-year-old. Now, that would suggest, at least to me, that of the 450,000 teachers in this country, one or two may not be doing such a good job. You might possibly reach that conclusion. Uh, over the last nine years, the, the General um, uh, Teaching Council has had 78 people referred to it for not doing such a great job, of whom 12, only 12, were actually suspended. So that suggests, might suggest, that there's an awful lot of fantastically good teachers and we're not differentiating them. 
Now, that's just a stat, and I, I'm as interested as I, uh, in stories as in figures. And I was um, uh, on the campaign for learning uh, uh, one of their trustees. One of my fellow trustees was um, Tamsin Emerson, who was made a dame for turning around a school in Highgate. Uh, it was a poor performing school, and she uh, totally transformed it, was recognized for that. And I said, what was the hardest thing? And she said, I had a school teacher who could only teach one subject. I said, well, what's the big deal about that? She said, his subject was tadpoles. <laughs> it took me six years to get him out of the school. So she was paying a salary for a teacher who could teach only about tadpoles for six years before she could um, actually do it. And she's one of the remarkable heads that's turned around the school. So what we have is a culture where there is no exit. Stanley Carnes was um, the former CEO of Dixon's, took over as chairman of an NHS trust, and they had a party. Why don't we have a, a celebration, a party, for people who've worked here for 25 years? That's an incredible level of dedication of service. So they held this party. Most of the people who turned up, none of the senior people had ever met. They actually weren't even working in the hospital. A lot of them had obesity or other issues, and they were no longer actually they were on the payroll, but no one had actually dealt with dealing with exit. So if we don't deal with exit, if there are no consequences for poor performance, and indeed no consequences for great performance, then we have a situation where the social loafing is likely to continue, in fact it will continue, uh, and therefore the standards will get lower and lower, and even the great people will have to fight very hard and be very much dependent on their own internal resources in order to find motivation to carry on. So where, where does the solution lie in, in, in much of this? And for us, as we see what happens in organisations, we work quite a lot with the public sector, with the Home Office, we're on the National School for Governance curriculum, uh, we work with a lot of local authorities. We also work quite a lot on the private sector, and how can you, um, uh, as um, Martin Laugh slightly teasingly pointed out, how can you transform performance by changing the way people think? Uh, and there's some really good experiments I'll share with you uh, about, um, they're slightly tired about the idea of stretching targets, but about setting goals and giving people frequent feedback. And this is the experiment they ran. They wanted to do a number of households and uh, encourage them to improve the energy efficiency of their house. And they have four groups of households. And the first two, they said, we'd like you to try and improve your energy efficiency by 20%. And in the second two groups, they said, we'd like to improve it by 2%. Uh, and then the first group, the, of the 20%, they said, we gave, went back once a fortnight to say, how are you doing? How are you doing against that target? And the other group, they just left them to it and came back at the end of the experiment. And again with the 2%, they did one group, went back every fortnight saying, how are you doing? And the other group, they didn't touch. Uh, with the first group, they had the stretching goal of 20%, and the fortnightly feedback, they reduced the energy efficiency by 17%. Didn't quite get there, and I guess in the world of mistakes, you go, oh my gosh, you failed to deliver your target, but 17% improved energy efficiency. The group of households that had the same target but didn't get the fortnightly feedback increased energy efficiency by 8%. Still good, but not nearly as good as the ones that had the frequent feedback. The ones that had the 2% goal but had the fortnightly feedback improved energy efficiency by 7%, and the ones that had the end of the small goal, the 2%, and didn't get any feedback, it actually got worse by half a percent. So what that tells us at a very simple level, and there's lots more research that sits behind this, is that if we have a situation where people are set stretching goals, give them frequent feedback, we will see an increase in performance, and we will break down the vicious cycle of social loafing. And then the question is, why don't we have this in the public sector, and indeed in, 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 in private, some private sector organizations as well? And at the heart of this, um, there are many things at the heart of this, but one of the things at the heart of this is the ability of managers and the confidence of them to have courageous conversations. That it is that tough 
conversation with somebody to talk about their performance. We, uh, we also, and mind you, run a parenting program uh, where we help parents in social housing situations improve their parenting skills. It's a purely uh, non-for-profit activity that we do. Uh, and what we found fascinating with parenting, if you've ever seen Super Nanny uh, on television, is it's about setting boundaries. It's about giving clear and precise feedback on what's right, and if the child has misbehaved, they go on the naughty step, and then there are rewards and treats for doing well. The same, much the same happens in management, and actually great parents often become much better managers. Um, and therefore, what we need to look at is how we can equip people in the public sector to have those performance conversations, to set the goals, to give the frequent feedback, to provide the coaching, not to look for instant satisfaction and to be willing to be unpopular at times. So my contribution today is to talk a bit about the, the people in the public sector and to make the suggestion that whilst the answer isn't good performance conversations, it's certainly there is no answer without it. Thank you very much. Okay, I must say I thought social loafing was kind of the whole point of going to work, but um, maybe that's why I became a journalist. Uh, maybe that's why journalism is on the point of collapse. Um, but um, I, mean, I, I like the idea of, uh, of, of talking up uh, the public sector when it does well. I have to say from my own personal experience that if I look at the two services that I've been in contact with that have done the best and the worst for me, uh, I have to say my children's primary school is doing brilliantly well. My mobile phone companies have been absolutely useless. Uh, in a general sense, I think we should applaud what has happened with our primary education sector. Um, and, uh, you know, we only have to look at uh, the banking sector to see how badly it can go wrong with the private sector. So I'd like today not to be about simply talking down the, the, the public sector. Um, how long have we got? Half an hour. I think we should go straight to questions uh, from the audience. So uh, does anybody have one? I'll take three. One at the back. One here and another one at the back. Paul Pemberton, the Weekend City Press Review. I actually thought the standard of contributions was really excellent, so I'd like to thank everybody for that. Um, and I could have made a, a comment about probably every one of the talks, but I'd just like to pick on one. Nick was talking about old consulting uh, terminology. I built a whole career um, with consultants using Pareto Principle. And given the cuts that we need to see made in our public services over the coming years, I wonder whether the agree that um, the Pareto Principle could be applied to see um, a lot of benefit um, to our services without necessarily um, having to see too much um, uh, restriction on, on the cuts that we have to make. What is it? Uh, basically, you, um, you can expect to see 80% of your deliverables by 20% of the inputs. Um, so, in other words, after you've spent 20% uh, of your money, um, you've received 80% of the payback that you're going to get. So the remaining 80% that you put in only achieves the, the further 20% of payback. Okay, thank you. Uh, <coughs> Nick Toon from Channel 4. Um, I just want to ask the panel their views on what they thought about the size and scale of the public sector and particular institutions and how much of that is a factor. We're talking about organizations being operated by people, the bigger the organization, the more alienated you feel from the bureaucracy, etc. And echoing Martin's experience at a personal level, I found my primary school experience exceptionally good. It's a effectively small business. Everybody knows everybody, everybody knows the customers, everybody knows the teachers. My eldest daughter has just gone to secondary school. I feel like I've lost complete visibility on what's going on. Uh, she's probably delighted about that, but um, uh, but I, you know I wonder whether there's an issue around the size and scale, especially you know when you look at the NHS, it's got something like a million employees. How do, how do you transform that? How do you deliver organisational or behavioural change in that kind of institution? 
then at the back. Hello, Sarah Modlock. I'm a journalist. I'm fascinated by Octavia's comment about the, um, having the courage to have difficult conversations and the naughty step because my perception is that this, is, that this culture of it's actually embracing mediocrity is being enabled from central government. It's therefore surely impossible for local government and then people depending on public authorities to actually you know, have these tough conversations and make efficiencies and get more out of public money when actually there's this paradigm at the top of you know, never ever saying anything that might upset anybody. When I was growing up, I remember politicians, my vague awareness of politicians was that if they did something wrong, maybe they resigned, but more importantly, they were sacked. You know, not only does nobody resign anymore, nobody's sacked when they do wrong. And they are just um, enabled to keep going, whether they get it really badly wrong or just, as I said earlier, just if they're mediocre. Thank you. Nick, perhaps. Yeah, uh, um, perhaps I could reply to a couple of the points that have come up variously. First of all, about the size of public services and about the size of the state. I mean, as I said, I think we need a debate about what is actually the legitimate sphere of activity um, of the state. But I think there's a, a tipping point um, in, in the size of public services. And I, myself, I think that tipping point was probably arrived at in about 2006 between um, adequacy of capacity and funding and then it going too far. And now I think we're, to, we're seeing um, two, two things where, we, where we've gone beyond the tipping point, where we need to scale back on the number of people that we employ, because obviously 86% of the cost of public services is in employing people. Uh, and the two reasons for that are, firstly, that, that you now get to the stage where I think organisations start making, people within organisations start making work for one another rather than producing outcomes for their uh, consumers. And, and the second is, is that organisations get so large, children's services, as I said earlier on as example is, where they lack that, that, that absolutely key thing, no matter how worthy your uh, vision and, and values are, is about having clarity and manageability about what they're um, supposed to be uh, doing. So I, I, I think that, that, that that's really very important. In terms of, of kind of principles which you can apply to um, uh, the management and the improvement of um, public services, Myself, I've always found two things that are really more important than anything else. One is actually relying upon things where there's evidence or knowledge about what actually works successfully. Uh, and I'd say local authorities are particularly bad at sharing knowledge with one another. Um, uh, they really are. I think that's something where the private sector ha ha has been uh, better. But then, of course, there's a commercial incentive for people to share knowledge and there's a curiosity which is driven by um, uh, commercial dynamics. But to be perfectly honest with you, the way that you run services, the way you get them right, the way you deal with them, it comes down to, to common sense. It really is about good old-fashioned common sense and having that and having leaders who've got common sense. Thank you. Chris? On, on sort of size and scale, I think um, we've got a big challenge ahead of us as we come out of this recession because uh, as a society we need to create jobs. And we have, over the last two to three years, um, looked to the public sector to do that. Uh, they won't be able to do it as um, public sector funding decreases. So we will need to look to the private sector um, to create jobs and wealth. And I think uh, there is some legitimate concern that uh, too many uh, good people uh, are underused in public services uh, and because there's not the 
consequence uh, of poor performance. We're not, as a society, getting the very best they could contribute, whether they were in public or private sector. So I think there is a, a requirement, if we are to create jobs, to um, reduce the size of the public sector over uh, the next uh, three to five years. Um, I, I very much agree with the point around performance management. It, in my experience, it's not a public sector issue entirely. Um, there are uh, very good and well-documented examples of poor performance management systems in the private sector as well. But I think as organisations grow, and the point about primary skills I think is uh, uh, an interesting one, you need to be able to split them into units uh, self-managing uh, with delegated, seriously delegated authorities and powers, or else there is simply too much space for people to hide and the consequences of poor performance um, can't be played out. Okay, I know Mary wanted to respond and uh, I think the other two panellists do as well. So let's go through the panel and then we'll take another round of questions. Uh, I, I was just really going to say on the size and scale of the public sector, I mean, I absolutely take your point about um, uh, too much centralisation and so on. But I think it's quite curious that, you know, I think in a year or two we're going to be lamenting the fact that the public sector, far from being far, far too large and too top-heavy, is actually ra rather too small for purpose and that a great deal of what the public sector does now has perhaps been hived off uh, rather unsuccessfully to, uh, to, to smaller organisations who simply can't cope with that. So I'm delighted to hear the public sector being talked about. I think we should absolutely realise how precious it is. And that's not at all to, to, to argue with. I'm not suggesting that you should go overall. What I'm asking a question of is if, and in my own personal experience in business as well, if you want to get the... If, if you continue with a million people, that's fine. How do you get the best out of that million people? And I just question whether the larger the unit, the more difficult it gets to drive... Well, I agree with that. I think, I, I think you know, things are clearly too... Uh, too over-centralised and too, too top-heavy. The, the only other point I wanted to make was really a response to, um, to what Octavius is saying. I think if you're going to have more tightly stretched public services, you've got to be very, very clear about where the problems lie. So the specific point about, um, uh, the specific point about um, teachers and so on, and, and, the, and the, the number of 14-year-old boys on free school lunches who have the reading age of a seven-year-old. I mean, I think it's probably dangerous to ascribe that purely or largely to lousy teachers and say, well, they all ought to have two ones and then we'd be fine and so on. I think behind those failing boys, I don't know if Nick would support this, there's a web of sort of family dysfunction, social failure and so on. So to take it all up to the sort of last line of defence and say, well, it's all the teacher's fault, we need a better breed of teacher and then things will be fine is perhaps a slightly risky path to go down. I think I should bring Octavius in at that point. It would be a risky path <laughs> if that's what I had proposed. Um, what I'm saying is that one of the people, I absolutely agree, parents have a greater influence on child's education than the teachers and that's been brought out by research which is why we've launched a parenting programme. But that equally teachers have a responsibility for the quality of the learning of our children as well. And the idea that there is very little differentiation between the quality of teachers, all teachers are marvellous, it's very hard to get rid of a teacher that's underperforming, this seems to be a pattern that continues across a wide range of schools. And I chose schools as an example but it could just as well have been NHS trusts, it could 
could just as well have been police forces, it could have been any other public sector, and as Chris says, it could also have been the private sector as well. So I'm certainly not trying to talk down public sector, not private sector in this. This is across organisations. Um, I just a few points quickly to make. I, the gentleman very kindly congratulated the panel on the quality of the panel. I also congratulate the quality of the questions as well. Um, on the Pareto point, I think that's absolutely spot on, and it's going to be a very tough thing to do because there are a lot of jobs that exist, um, as um, uh, Nick was saying earlier, jobs exist because the jobs need to exist. And there's a, an interesting uh, Eric Byrne, who's a great psychologist of former years, uh, talks about psychological games where we get into patterns of behavior uh, and they continue and the key is to how to find a way to get out of it. And one of the patterns he talks about is in the unemployment office, this is a hypothetical situation, and he mark makes very clear that people who are playing the game aren't aware they're playing the game. But someone comes in who's unemployed, doesn't, wants, doesn't desperately want to go back to work because for reasons Nick has highlighted earlier, that may be better off as a lifestyle choice. The person in the unemployment office doesn't want everyone to suddenly go back into work because ultimately where's their role from that and therefore a kind of merry dance goes on and the, there's an effort made by the person who comes up and says oh I've tried this job and I've tried that and there's an effort made by the person who runs the unemployment office or, or the particular councillor who will do their best to help but if they don't quite get there they don't do this uh, and I can give a number of other examples the unemployment office is the one from Eric Byrne but I can give some personal ones as well to the charity that was trying to help prostitutes find a way out and actually did the opposite. But there, there are many examples of that. So on the Frito point and Eric Byrne, um, I, I can uh, sympathise with that. On the size of organisations, Gore-Tex, and again, I think it is good to learn lessons from where it's gone well. Gore-Tex, fantastically successful organisation, has the rule of 150. And it says any organisation that more than 150 people, you can't know each other and you can't operate effectively. So they have parallel factories next to each other with two HR departments, two IT departments, two finance departments. And any of the compliance consultants would have an epileptic fit and go, oh, this is nuts, you've got to merge them and save money. But actually the size of 150. And one of the reasons why I suspect your primary school works so well is because of its size. And maybe one reason why the secondary school is hard to access is again because of its size. Which brings me on to the point from the, the lady um, about the... Um, uh, uh, completely lost my train of central government and local government and if the central government don't, um, won't accept responsibility and no one resigns um, then how can you do it, do it further down the chain brief red herring just to tell you the first political poster I ever saw was handmade and it was the door of my next door neighbour and it said don't vote it only encourages them <laughs> which I had some sympathy um, I think the point there is that one can always blame in any organisational or, or system the leaders and say if only they'll do it differently than everyone else would. I remember working with a consultancy and said, well, the partners of this consultancy won't change. They're all stuck in their ways. I said, of course they are. They've grown up to do this. That's how they've got to that level. But there are lots of other people out there who are your fast starters, your people who are change agents, your Elvises, who want to change, who want to make things happen differently. And I certainly know local authorities who are changing regardless of central government. I know teachers and head teachers who are transforming schools regardless of the system around them. So I think there's an awful lot of opportunity. And back to the second point, if you have smaller institutions that are more, more independent, and maybe, as Nick was saying, more based on consumer preferences, that would allow them to make those changes faster. That's too long an answer, I'm that's, sure. That's I, want, I want to quickly link... Uh, the three questions. Um, yes, size is important. Si size is absolutely crucial, and it's particularly important because of the quality of conversation you get in a smaller organisation that people have decent conversations with, with each other. And uh, Frederick Bird taught us that that is the key to ethical behaviour in organisations and to effective behaviour in organisations. It's absolutely crucial. Which also is, uh, for the point at the back about tough conversations, those only happen effectively between people who know each other well enough to have a tough conversation. A tough conversation between people who don't know each other is called a row. 
or a shouting match. Uh, whereas if people actually know each other well enough, then they can have tough and effective conversations, which incidentally is the root of the apparent disagreement between Octavius and myself about targets. Because if targets are set without that tough conversation, uh, then they're useless. If people set those targets and then disappear back onto the top of Mount Olympus and, and come back a year later to see if anything's happened, that's useless. If people set it as part of an ongoing tough conversation, then it's really effective. The problem with, for me with the Pareto Principle is who is it who's going to decide which is the 20% which makes the 80% difference? And that is an enormously political with a small p uh, topic in all organizations, as everyone knows. I mean, we all know in our own organizations that we are the 20% that makes the 80%. <laughs> and the other people not, don't we? So, 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 so I, I think that might be more problematic than it sounds. Except, of course, once again, that the, the, the smaller the organisation or the better the quality of the conversation going on in it, the better your chances. Thanks. Okay, a couple of questions from the front. Uh, Neil and uh, Julia, and uh, maybe Peter from the back. Um, Neil Stewart, I'm a non-exec at uh, Editorial Intelligence, but Neil Stewart Associates and various other things. Um, I mean, first of all, fantastic uh, presentations. I mean, I put together panels all the time looking at public management, and this is one of the best that I've heard, and I'll be using all of you later on in the year. <laughs> um, secondly, I want to say that um, I think we look, we're, we're at quite a cathartic moment um, in the changes that need to happen, and it's pre presenting quite a, a big crisis for the left and for the right, the conservative instinct is to look back to the 1980s and to the manufacturing model, uh, age of austerity, and you saw how George Osborne and others slipped into it. But for the left, it's even worse. In the past two years, the HR departments and other people in major companies have succeeded in working with the people they employ uh, to achieve one of the biggest redistributions redistributions of work to try and keep people in work and they have defeated the trade unions consistently uh, across the public sector. People have opted to go with quite difficult often salary reducing, bonus reducing even to the point in Honda of taking four months off with the prospect of a job at the end of it which is better than getting onto the welfare system and being stuck there forever. So people are capable of making difficult choices. Um, the cathartic moment in public services is going to be whether or not the producer interest sits there and says psychologically, I've got my terms and conditions, I'm going to take the chances that I'm going to be one of the 90% or 80% who's not cut but I'm sitting tight or whether senior management and others will be able to look at the option of redistribution. Now, redistribution will matter extensively anywhere above Peterborough. Because if you go to Gordon Brown's constituencies in Fife, you are looking at 50% of the population work in the public sector. A very large number of the rest work in an organization that's not treated as the public sector, but it's called Rosyth Dockyard, which is dependent on defense projects. For civic leaders in large parts of the country, and they're going to have to ask the question, do we cut or do we redistribute? And I haven't heard anybody on the left be prepared to say the best option for our community 
is we redistribute. And that's going to mean difficult decisions for trade unions and professional groups, and we're going to turn things round, and they're going to have to stand up and say that. Otherwise, the consequences will be, you know, 15, 20% unemployment in some areas, which becomes a tipping point. Your 700 difficult families become 1,200, and suddenly the system is overwhelmed. So it seems to me that that's the catharsis we're going through. And we had two examples this morning. We've got the British Airways strike, which is an old-style, creaky, uh, almost corporate Britain on the one hand. And on the other hand, we had the universities, front page of the independent. Now, everybody I'm working with says the university cuts are so far 1.6%. I mean, just think about that. That is minuscule compared to what the public sector has went through. It's minuscule compared to what, uh, you know, BT and others have been taken through. And yet the screams and screeches are extensive. That's just not going to be put up with. So I think we are at quite a cathartic moment. I think the civic point, who the civic leaders are, who's going to stand up and say this? Um, very difficult, but a big crisis for left and right. And a lot of it's going to be about redistribution. And north of Peterborough, it's going to be about redistribution in because those public sector jobs, if they go, there aren't private sector jobs. Quick point, a PN to primary schools, but this afternoon I'm going to lose half a day attending what they still quaintly call parents' evening, but is in fact parents' afternoon. I would love some joined up thinking and someone to create a marvellous software programme that makes it possible to make your appointments with your primary school teachers in under a week. Um, the primary school my children attend is wonderful because I exerted pushy parent choice and moved them from one state borough to another state borough because the old school was, in my view, failing them. And what worries me is the lack of joined up thinking for the dispossessed, the children that Nick looks after who don't have pushy parents or who have very, very bad parents and how those of us in the community, if you like, can meaningfully help those children. And I'm wondering whether some marvelous alliance between the Mind Gym and Doncaster Council and creating some sort of mentoring scheme for those people who are not so at the margins, because it seems to me that part of what um, atrophies in the public sector is isolation, profound silos, profound isolation, where there is nothing joined up, there is nothing creative. So it's a bore for me to have to take off a half a day, but I can do it and I can afford it. But it's a much more meaningful impact, this lack of joined up thinking further down the system. Peter York, I want to make two points about language. The first is that the public sector, the question of size and nature of the public sector is very, very ill-served by media in general, the commentariat. The dominant voice is what I call the Richard Littlejohn voice, and I think the response to the Richard Littlejohn voice, which you see all, I mean, to top to bottom, in, certainly in print, is a sort of reaction of critical friends won't be critical because they don't want to endorse the Richard Littlejohn voice. And it's very, very important that there's another part of the dialogue. The second language point is the language of the public sector itself, the language of Quangos. I see as a consultant, but a consultant, I think I'm, I'm a mini consultant, I do little useful things. Um, I see again and again what I want to start with in any client is its language 
because that language has been corroded and corrupted by first big ideas, you know, free-floating big ideas borrowed from that hinterland of free thinking and business books. Second, by the sort of pressure of the ideas of central government. And thirdly, by the language of business itself. And what people take, and I think David Sims was mentioning this, what people in the public sector seize on is crappy, old, discredited, bongo language because it sounds nice. And people seize on language that describes levers which don't have any wires attached in the public sector. And it's completely pointless. So you read the major statements of a major quango, and they're a horrible mishmash of big thinking, big ideas, inappropriate to the scale of that organization, of government pressure, and the most awful, you know, internal markety stuff that's ancient and terrible, and that has to be cleaned out first. Thank you, Peter. Um, we're going to have to wind up now, aren't we? I think that's right. Um, so what um, I'm going to ask the panel to do, and this is a rather complicated exercise, is uh, I'm going to ask them to uh, answer the questions they wish to answer from that little cluster, uh, summarize, summarize their own uh, arguments, and also answer my question, which is, uh, uh, is it possible to innovate? Uh, during a time of austerity? And if so, could you give us some uh, ideas? I have two. Um, one is abolish job centres. Uh, and the second one is to uh, introduce or reintroduce the 1980s, an idea from the 1980s, I'm afraid, uh, enterprise allowance scheme to fund uh, uh, startup businesses direct from the benefits system. So there you go. I'd like a, a summary, answer questions, all in one, lots of difficult, innovative thinking on the panel right now, please. So, starting over the left. Okay, yeah. Well, taking the last point first, certainly it's very possible to innovate uh, in, in, in the public sector, provided the right preconditions exist, uh, and there's a preparedness to look at a variety of providers who are prepared to innovate. Uh, within education, since it's raised its head three or four times now, many of the services that we provide to schools still are, are, are little dissimilar from when they were established uh, by the 1944, 1944 Education Act. They're still in existence. God almighty, there's got to be some scope to innovate around there. Every time I try to, bang, like that with the trade unions. Won't have it, right? Second point, really, just to, uh, uh, to answer those points. I mean, I think, I mean, we haven't really raised this subject, though, so I'm going to raise it, and really it's going to sound odd for me saying this because it's like sitting on a branch and sawing it off. But I think the public sector's got to accept this that I think there's a limited patience amongst the public about the amount of money they're going to pay in tax for services, particularly if they're not high return, as I said early on. I mean, anybody, you know, who, who's earning anything decent these days, depends on your definition of that, is, is, is only seeing like 55% of what they earn back. That's not on, is it? You know, uh, people are going to want to see more of it. So we're going to have to... And the, the, the key argument is that economic re regeneration, or if you like as a concomitant of, of, of reducing the size of the public sector, has to come about by reduced taxes, particularly corporate taxes in the short term, that stimulate growth. And in my view, what the Irish government has done, because they're not facing a general election for another two years, they've taken the right thing, the hard medicine, in response to the economic downturn. And I think that's an example of where we're going to have to go uh, inevitably in, in six or seven weeks' time after general election. 
Okay, I'm going to innovate and jump right to the other end of the panel, Octavius. Certainly. Um, I, the most innovation happens in time of austerity. When you're up against it, you're more willing to look at things in a completely different way because you have to. So I think this is absolutely the period for innovation. I think it's incredibly exciting for those reasons. Um, I think the scale of what needs to be done is, as, as exactly as Nick says, is enormous. I'm Nick Cohen, I've read the other day, as a former colleague of Martin's, um, said that the ratio of hospital beds to managers in 1997 was 12 beds to each manager, and now it's four beds to each manager. So that gives a sense of the scale of increasing in managers rather than increasing in frontline services, and therefore the level of transformation we need to make to that. And I think that requires enormous amounts of innovation, a la Ireland, a la Sweden, a la other countries who've taken on these challenges in a range of different political hues and, and address them strongly. I think one of the other contentious issues to throw in is uh, talk about industrial relations is about national pay. I think one of the big problems if you're up in Forsyth or in Sunderland or anywhere else is you want to start a small business up there. One of the big advantages you'd think you'd have is a lower salary level, that labour would be slightly cheaper and therefore be an opportunity to go there. But because 50% is paid for by the public sector, and because the public sector is largely paid on national pay bargaining, that greatly reduces the chances for those free businesses, small enterprises that Chris and David and others have talked about from having a chance to blossom. So that would be one area I think would be um, worth some innovative thinking. Thank you. David. Okay, uh, the, the <coughs> those last three comments um, I, I'm, I'm not going to respond to because I'm, I'm just looking forward to listening to them again on the podcast because I thought, I thought they were three great comments and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting more into them and so I, so I need to hear those again and think about them. And also I, I, I work in something which is broadly public sector and therefore I think quite slowly so I, obviously I wouldn't expect a response now. Um, in, in, in terms of a prescription for what we need to do, our problem, I think, overall is the compliance culture, uh, which does not solve problems and we keep reaching for. And uh, that's the first thing we have to get rid of in order to get the, the kind of good conversation we need. In terms of innovation, yes, I mean, down, down times are great, great times for, for innovation. They, they focus the mind wonderfully. Um, but let's be really careful about what that innovation is about, because if the innovation is about uh, yet more clever use of irrelevant words, uh, yet more stuff that sounds like it might make a difference but actually is, is totally irrelevant, then we've wasted an opportunity. Uh, if the innovation is about the climate within organizations, the climate within which people are working, getting rid of blame cultures, getting into actually encouraging innovative and productive conversation, then the innovation is worth it. So, yeah, it's a great time for innovation, but let's just worry about what, what the innovation is actually going to be about. Um, just picking up on two points briefly, I, I think what's happening at British Airways at the moment is fundamentally important to what happens to industrial relations um, in the UK going forward. The issues there are very much public sector issues. You've got a private company that's, be, that's really not dealt with a lot of the um, legacy from being a nationalised organisation some uh, 15 or so years ago. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see the decisions that the workers make on whether to try and um, work with management to get a... Uh, a, a compromise solution or whether they do all walk out uh, come uh, next Saturday. 
the difference between that and what happens in the public sector is that there's a commercial imperative for the management of British Airways to do something about it because otherwise they will go bust an EasyJet and Ryanair and uh, the rest will, will simply hoover up their, their, their passengers. So um, the, the needs in, in, in this uh, redistribution, which I think is exactly the word that we ought to be using, to be some imperative to give the workers and the unions uh, uh, um, the courage to work with management uh, because uh, you know, I, I think it would be much better if uh, we could redistribute rather than, than simply cut. Um, in terms of innovation, uh, I think you will see much more innovation uh, as a product of uh, reduced expenditure. And One good example uh, is what uh, DWP have done with backing Young Britain uh, a part of which is to find uh, 20,000 internships for non-graduates, a contract that we're delivering. And um, what we've decided to do is, rather than what we've managed to convince them to do, is rather than the traditional uh, t young person turns up at a job centre and gets an interview, it's all done online and through a call centre. So that also takes away the problem that Eric Burns identified of the councillor not wanting the unemployed person to go back to work. Thank you very much. And finally, Mary. Um, I was very interested in Julia's point um, uh, about uh, the, uh, the children who, who are ignored. In, in my own paper this week, the big debate about education was whether you should teach Latin or not, which you know, is all very interesting and all very relevant. But it does point to a much more uh, elitist uh, system, and I think that's where politicians of both parties, in different ways, have their attention focused. I think until you start looking at the children who are failing from very, very early on in life, through parental failure, through poverty, whatever, you're not really going to uh, address the problem of what we do with public services, since these children are the ones who will inevitably grow up, or uh, very likely grow up, to place the greatest burden on public services. The presumption is that public services can and must be cut as, as funds dry up and, and you know, I quite agree with Neil that um, we have to be much more clever at looking at redistribution and so on but actually the inexorable logic is that public services must grow in all sorts of areas uh, social care is one which the government is struggling with very badly the Lords have uh, effectively booted out it's not very good and very hasty uh, free personal care measure for a few there'll be a white paper out next week and come what may with the ageing population we are going to be spending a great deal more on, um, uh, on, on uh, social care and uh, that's going to be a hugely expensive um, public service of the future so I wind up really on, on the point that Octavius made I think that uh, austerity is uh, a good backdrop for cutting those things um, which we genuinely uh, don't need. And, uh, I mean, the examples I took were the vast amounts of money that are wasted on criminal justice and uh, the money that's perhaps not wasted but uh, that we can no longer afford on defence. Clearly, there are, there are other areas, and I think we're going to have to be... Um, take the sort of drastic decisions that all politicians uh, most wish to avoid. They're electorally unpopular. They are now, I think, unavoidable. Thank you, Mary. So it just remains for me to thank uh, Julia and her team at Editorial Intelligence for organising such a fascinating uh, event. You were great. The panel were great. Uh, 
thanks also to Mind Jim, uh, Reed, and our hosts, uh, Cass. So, uh, could we thank our panelists in a normal way, please? <laughs>